Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our summer study through the book of Colossians. And this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, starting off Colossians chapter 3. Well, it seemed like it took forever to get here, but summer has finally arrived in Chicago. And the last two weeks, right, it's finally felt like it. And one of the things about summertime in Chicago are there are limitless things to do. Festivals, concerts, block parties. You could go to probably five a day in Chicago and you wouldn't even hit half of the things going on in our city during like the five months, of, well, no, the five weeks of the year that it's actually nice outside. But where I lived in high school, it wasn't like that. There wasn't a lot going on. And so I remember when I was in high school one summer, it was announced that there was a Christian music festival coming close to our area. Close for me meant an hour and a half away. But when you live in a county without a stoplight, that is relatively close still. And this, this music festival is a Christian music festival. For those of you who were teenagers like me in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was the who's who. It was the supertones and audio adrenaline. And to most of you, that means absolutely nothing. And that's okay. But some people are really excited right now. And so I got the, I was like, oh, I'm going to go. And it's going to be so much fun. And I was working at camp that summer. And I told the guy who was there leading worship that I was going to that concert. And he asked some of the people who would be there. And I told them. And he said, you know, I, I live most of the year in Nashville. And I go to the same church with a lot of those guys. In fact, I'm in small group with some of them. Do you want me to come with you and I can take you backstage and you can meet them? I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. That would be great. And so I show up at the concert with some of my friends from church and eventually he meets me there. And then I go and just a couple of us go with him and we kind of go off to the side area and there's all the RVs and everything lined up next to it. And he just walks up to the security guy he says who he is, and they go, okay, and we just go, we're with him, we're with him, and they go, all right, come on through, and I got to go backstage and meet several of these Christian artists, who, and I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever when I was in high school. Now, I didn't get to go backstage, I didn't get access back there to meet some of these people because of who I was, because of anything that I had done, any talents that I had. There was one reason I got to go backstage and meet these people. It's because of who I was with. And who I was with got me things, and there was benefits of who I was with that I had no opportunity, no right or privilege on my own, but I had simply because I was with them. As followers of Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, the benefits of salvation... The benefits that you and I can have in our lives are only true for one reason, and it's because of who we are with. It's not due to our own gifting or our own talents. The only reason we can have any benefit of salvation is if we are with Jesus. And Paul's going to expound this morning in the passage we're going to look at on this idea of being with Jesus. If you have your Bibles, would you open them, please, to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be looking at just the first four verses. These four verses kind of function as a pivot here in the book of Colossians, which is four chapters long. They're kind of the center point of it. They look back on the first two chapters. 
which Paul has spent primarily talking about theological issues. And in these four verses, Paul gives a summary of much of the theology that's come before, and he starts to transition us to the second half of the book in chapters 3 and 4 to the practical outworkings of that salvation, of that theology that we have been taught. And he highlights for us in these verses what theologians call the concept of unity with Christ or our union with Christ. And Paul has talked about how great a Savior Jesus is, how he is God himself, how salvation is only through him. And through all that, he has talked also about the unity that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, have to him. It's why in chapter 1, he said the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The passage this morning in verse 1 starts just like how the paragraph before had that Pastor Larry talked for us last week, preached through. It says, if. And if here, like last week, doesn't mean, well, maybe you have or maybe you haven't. But it's the idea of since you have. Since you have been raised with Christ. In chapter 2, verses 20, it starts with, if you have died with Christ. If you have died with Christ, and there he talked about some of the things, the negative behaviors that we were to avoid. But now, if you have been raised with Christ, Paul's now going to expound for us some of the positive things that should be true in our lives if we indeed have shared in the resurrection with Jesus Christ. And he says this command to them, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. That your life and your will and your interests and your desires would no longer be oriented towards yourself, towards the world, but instead they would be oriented above. And why are we to do this? Why is that where we should now orient our lives to, to the heavenly realm rather than to just what we see here on earth? Well, Paul says we should do this because that's that's where Christ is. That's where Jesus is. And if we have experienced resurrection with Christ, we should set our minds on where Christ is, which is above, not on the things of this earth anymore. In fact, he says Jesus is there seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. Now, Paul doesn't want us to like try and paint a picture of heaven and we have to have God up here with Jesus on a chair and don't put him on the left side, but put him on the right side because that's where he goes. This is an expression alluding all the way back to Psalm chapter 110 verse 1 that's either referenced or alluded to 33 times in the New Testament. Being at the right hand of God wasn't just where you were sitting, but it was the position of honor, the position of privilege, the position of prominence. And that's where Jesus is right now, seated at the right hand of God. All the honor and glory is given to him. And in case we missed it, he repeats it again in chapter 2, slightly more specific. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
The things that on our earth are those things that the false teachers were focusing on in chapter 2. But instead, we're to set our minds on things above. Again, this is not just an intellectual ascent, like we should think more about Jesus, or we should just think more about certain things. But this phrase that Paul uses to set your mind is another way of saying, orient your entire life. Change all of your priorities to things that are above. Let it be true of each and every part of you. And this morning as we look at exactly what it means that we are with Christ, we're going to see three implications of being united to Christ. And the first that we see here in these two verses is that we are to have a complete surrender to Christ. The first implication of being united to Christ is a complete surrender of our lives to Jesus. See, chapter 3, as I mentioned before, transitions from kind of theology to more specific commands to this church in Colossae and how they were to live it out. And Paul sets up the book of Colossians as most of the other New Testament letters are set up. And that he starts with talking about the indicative, who you now are in Jesus, before he goes to the imperative commands of how then they should live their lives. It's seen throughout scripture that the indicative comes before the imperative. See, Paul grounds our Christian behavior in Christian identity. Paul grounds how we are to live our lives with who we have become in Jesus Christ. And we must understand who we are if we are ever going to live like how God has called us to live. Sometimes we struggle with Christian behavior, with Christian living, because we haven't rightly understood and embraced this Christian identity that God has given you and I who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't call us just to change some of our actions, just to change some of our behaviors. God calls on us to change and to surrender our entire selves to him. And when we understand that we have been united to Christ, that we have died to Christ, we have been crucified with Christ, and now that we have been raised with Christ, we will understand the truth that Jesus was never meant just to be added on to the rest of your life. Jesus was never meant just to kind of be added on so you can go about your week, but just throw in some Jesus on the side and you'll be good and you'll be set. What the gospel calls us to, what our Christian identity being united to Christ calls us to, is a fundamental shift of all that we are, all that we would want, and all that we would desire off of the things of this world, off of ourselves, and onto Jesus. See, sometimes being a Christian is reduced to being a good person. You go to church on Sundays and you throw in some spiritual disciplines. You read your Bible sometimes. You pray, especially before meals, especially in public if someone from church might see you there. So that you look good and you do some certain things. We sometimes treat Christianity like it's just an add-on to our lives. It's as if sometimes we, it's like you find a new diet or exercise program. And you probably won't stick with it forever, but that's no big deal. Because you'll try it out for a little bit. 
and you'll figure out maybe some things that are useful and helpful for you in your life, and then you'll kind of cast it aside and just keep the things that are helpful. Sometimes we treat Christianity this way, that I'm going to try out Christianity. I'm just going to check out the Bible. I'm going to check out church. And we'll find some things that are helpful to us, that make us feel good. And then this Bible will say other things. And we say, yeah, I don't, I don't really like that. I'm just going to cast that aside. Completely surrender all of my life, dying to Christ. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I'm just going to set that aside. See, there's certain things that change the very identity of who you are. And if you have been united with Christ, and not only changes how you are to live your life, it changes who you are in this life. There's certain things that we go through that change not just how we are to live, but exactly who we are. Just last night on this very platform here at the church, I came and was witnessed with about a hundred other people as we celebrated two members of our church getting married here last night. And if you are married or have been married, you, you know that marriage doesn't just require you to change some of your behaviors. It requires you to change who you are. You can't go in and be like, I'm just still the same me. I just got a wife added along. I hope she gets used to how things are going to go. That's not going to go well. I can guarantee you. But when you get married, it's a fundamental shift in your identity. Because your, your life is no longer resolved just around and focused on you, but now there's someone else who's a part of it as well. And it changes who you are. Parents, you've experienced the same things. The moment that child enters the world, your identity has changed. You are now a mom or a dad, and that changes who you are. The moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it changed who you are that you died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. And because we have been united with Christ, it changes who we are and it calls on us to surrender all of our lives to him. Jesus doesn't want just a part of you. He doesn't just want your money or want you to come to church. Jesus wants all of your life to be focused and surrendered to him. See, we've called this sermon series through Colossians all in for Jesus. And maybe you could come on Sundays, maybe you've been here regularly, and you think, well, that's, that's good for those, like, super Christians, the really religious people who really want to follow Jesus. But I, I, I'm not a really religious person, I'm just a Christian, and I don't need to be all in for Jesus. But if we understand what it means to be united to Christ, we'll understand that this call to surrender all of our lives to God isn't something for the religious elite or for super spiritual Christians. It's for each and every one of us. Are there areas in your life that haven't been surrendered to God? Are there areas of your life that you haven't allowed who you are in Christ to impact? That you've held on to certain things, held on to thought patterns, desires, interests, motives that you haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ. Jesus wants all of our lives. He continues in verse 3. Paul says this, For you have died. 
Again, like he said in 2.20, you have died with Christ. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. He doesn't mean that it's lost and you can't find it. Like Jesus has hidden your life somewhere. But this expression of being hidden with Christ in God is this idea of safety and security because we have been united to Christ. And the second implication of being united to Christ is that we have full security in Christ. We have full security in Jesus Christ. See, safety and security are most likely high values of each and every one of us here this morning. We all want security in our lives. No matter where you come from, what do you want financially? Well, whatever it is, you ultimately, you want financial security. What do you want relationally? Well, ultimately, you want relational security. And what do we want and what do we need spiritually? We need spiritual security. We need to know that our hearts are held fast, that we are secure in who we are. The problem can come because security is a good desire that each and every one of us have. That if we don't follow how the Bible says to find security, we will manipulate it ourselves and actually lead ourselves into a false sense of security. There are people, most likely even here this morning, who believe that they are fine before God, not because they are united to Christ, but because they have actually a false sense of spiritual security in their lives. So what are some things that could give us a false, spent, a false sense excuse me, of spiritual security? The first is legalism. Legalism in our lives can give us a false sense of spiritual security. And if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that we've studied kind of this legalistic attitude that was happening in the church at Colossians. Because when we struggle with legalism in our lives, we emphasize rituals and rules and behaviors over a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, a legalist can think they are fine before God because they do all the external things that everyone else does. They come to church, they give, they worship, they serve, but they're not doing it out of a love for God, a response for God. They're doing it because that's what they think they need to do. And ultimately, a legalist can have a false sense of security because they've convinced themselves that they are okay for one reason alone, because of what they do. If you think you are secure before God because of something you have done, or you are continuing to do. That's just a false sense of security. The second thing that brings a false sense of spiritual security in our lives is prosperity. Is prosperity. When things are going well, relationally, things are going well. You have a good marriage. Your kids like you. Things are going good at work. Actually, you got to raise this year. You're like, hey, you know what? my life is going pretty good. You know what that must mean? And you don't actually think this logically through, but your heart tends to think it. You know what this means? I'm fine spiritually. Because God is blessing me in certain areas of my life, it must mean that I am fine spiritually before God as well. And what happens is we can confuse the blessings of God with the approval of God in our lives. 
And just because God has blessed you relationally and you have blessed you financially doesn't mean that you stand secure before him because you're focused on the blessings that he could give you, not on him alone. And sometimes prosperity in our lives actually gives us a false sense of security. The third thing that can give us a false sense of security is a lack of guilt in our lives. A lack of guilt. Now, I'm not saying this morning that if you're here and you don't feel really guilty about something, that you have a false sense of security. That's not what I'm saying. Christians shouldn't live their lives just feeling guilty all the time. But in the book of Romans and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes about how as human beings we can do so much wrong that in 1 Timothy 4 it says your conscience can actually be seared and you no longer feel bad for doing sinful and wrong things. If the measure of the sin in your life is if you feel good or bad about it, you have a false sense of security. The measurement of sin in our lives isn't our feeling of personal guilt, but it's what God's word says is true. And sometimes there may be sin in our lives that we have become so calloused and hardened to that we think we have security when in fact we have just become numb to the very sin that's present in our hearts. If you want spiritual security, the Bible's clear. Spiritual security starts and ends with the relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts and ends when we are united to Christ. See, we have security in our salvation, not because of any feelings we have, any things we've done, any blessings we receive. We have security in our salvation for one reason alone, who we are united to. And we, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are hidden with Christ in God. You are hidden with Christ in God. Now sometimes this is difficult because life doesn't always feel safe and secure. Life will hit each and every one of us. And when life hits us, and sometimes this is just me or when it hits you, it decides to slap you again and then again and then again, and it hits you while you're down. When life hits you, it's easy to feel like your life is no longer secure, like you're getting under attack. And you may panic and think, is my life okay? Does God still have me? I want to encourage you this morning that if your life is going through the ringer, if you're being under attack, if everything is going wrong in your life, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, your life is hidden with Christ and God. It does not matter the circumstances of this world. They do not change that fact that you are hidden with Christ and God. Jesus, speaking of those who would have their faith in him, said, my father has given them to me and no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. We have security and salvation, not because of anything we've done, but because we are united to Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice how being united to Christ was so all-consuming for Paul. When Christ, who is your life, Jesus is your life if you are a Christian. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
See, the third implication of being united to Christ is a continual hope in Christ. A continual hope in Christ. If you are united to Christ, your future is directly tied to Jesus' future. And scripture teaches clearly what the future of Jesus is, that he will come again, and he will come in power, and when he comes, it will change all of us who believe in him for salvation. See, there's this, when we think of being united to Christ, there's this tension that we should experience, that we already are united to Christ. We have forgiveness of sin. We have a future. We have a hope. But what we will receive is not yet here. Life as we experience it now is not what it was meant to be or will be for eternity. See, we are united to Christ, but you and I still await the full implications of what that will mean for us one day in the future. First John puts it this way. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. In Philippians chapter 3, it says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The hope that we have for this world is tied directly to the hope that we have in Christ's return. See, so often in evangelical Christian circles today, when we think of the return of Jesus Christ, we love to then get into our textbooks and start to debate different views about when and where and timing and pre this and post this and mid this, and we love to think about things like that. Now, there are certainly good reasons to study theology like that. And if you want to talk, I would love to. I've read thousands of pages about the topic. That's what you go to seminary for, just to read a lot of books. But I don't want you to miss that in Scripture, when it talks about the return of Jesus Christ, it doesn't anticipate that for the church one day, this is a great topic for us to debate. When is it going to be? What's it going to be like? But it's the great confidence and hope that each and every one of us share. Because in this world, we experience so much hurt, so much harm, so much pain. How are believers not to just become discouraged? How are we not just to enter into despair thinking, what is wrong with this world? What is wrong with myself? What is going to happen? But we have a continual hope in Jesus Christ. Because he will come back, and we have been united to him, and when he comes back, we will see him as he is, and our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like him. We will appear with him in glory. See, being united to Jesus Christ changes our past, our present, and our future. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ, it changes your past. You can be justified. You can be legally declared righteous from your sin. You can be forgiven of all wrongdoing. 
And being united to Christ changes our past. Our slate is wiped clean. So when God sees us, he sees nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are united to him. Being united to Christ changes the present. It changes how we live and how we orient our very lives. That our focus is no longer on ourselves, but we are to set our minds on Christ, on the things above. That we have a security no matter what would come into our lives. And it changes the future. Because regardless of what will happen to us, regardless of how bleak the outlook is, regardless of what the diagnosis is that the doctors visit tomorrow, we have the hope that Jesus will return. And because we are united to him, we too will be raised and see him in glory. All of these things are true. Not because of anything that you or I could ever do. Not because of any qualifications we may have. These things in our lives can only be true for one reason. If you're united to Christ. If you want to have that change from the past, the present, and the future. If you want to be united to Christ, the Bible is clear that all it takes is to cry out to him to place your faith in him, and he will enter into your lives, give you forgiveness when you trust in him alone for salvation. And for those of us who are united to Christ, what would it look like for us this week in this city to live that out? If we went to work this week, living out not the identity the world gave us, but the identity that Jesus has given us, that we are united to him. God, we do thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation, for the life, for the hope that is only found in knowing him. God, would our lives reflect that identity that we truly have. You have so radically changed us. And we thank you that no matter what we're experiencing this week, no matter what would come into our lives, we can have security and we can have hope because we are united to Christ. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.